And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. <clears throat> not many verses today, but they are chock full of meaning. And we're going to talk about imminent eschatology, which is the belief that Yeshua is coming any time now, and if we believe it, which I do not, how it should show up in our actions according to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians and, well, just based on simple decency and love, actually. Hello, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. <clears throat> if you prefer written material... I have five years' worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website, Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. You cannot, however, just decide that Hellman's mayonnaise isn't the devil's condiment. Look, it's even in the title! All right, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> a list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Now, but I wasn't kidding. You know what? Mayo is evil. <laughs> it is. I'm going to take oil and egg yolks and whip them together and get something white. It's witchcraft, I tell you. It's witchcraft. Plus, it's disgusting and it's rubbery and it's gross. It's disgusting and gross, which is worse than just being disgusting. All right. So first I want to go somewhere that might be a bit unexpected. And that is back to the second servant song in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. And I believe that is actually part three of my Isaiah and Messiah series that I did this winter, if you want to go check that out. Okay. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, or lift his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, 
who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I am telling you of them. All right. So the servant is given <clears throat> as a covenant for the people and as a light to the nations. To do what? To open the eyes that are blind, to release people from captivity, to bring those who are in darkness into the light. How did Yeshua describe himself in John 8 verse 12? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This is the function of the servant, to take those in darkness and release them from it into the light. The servant is not only a teacher, but also a remover of blindness and a bringer of light. And that is the context from which I want to teach today's verses. And this is something new for me. One of my commentaries pointed this out and I was like, it was like this huge, oh, duh, you know, moment for me, right? I, I, I love this. Verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Who is them? We assume that this is the an extension of the more intimate setting of Yeshua teaching the Twelve, plus those from the crowd who were deemed to be insiders, those who accepted his teachings and were legitimately his followers, but who whom were not counted among the Twelve. Because, you know, there are insiders and then there are insider insiders, right? We're all just glad to be even counted as insiders, right? <laughs> I am. Um, but being an insider meant that once the crowds were gone, you got special attention and instruction. You weren't there for the entertainment value or the healings or the miracles. You were there because of the man and his message and because you saw that he was a prophet and yet maybe more than a prophet? Maybe the Messiah? Maybe. But there's something about him and his message that's drawing you in and you're intrigued at this person. What he says and, and who he will associate with and, and how he even touches lepers even though he isn't a priest. He's unlike anyone you have ever seen before. And although that is offensive to some of your friends, family, and neighbors, you find yourself drawn to him. You don't just want the goodies. You want more. You want to hear more. You want more of him. So to these people 
who were taking chances with their reputations and sticking close, who are not falling in line with the Jerusalem scribes and are ignoring the concerns of his own family, Yeshua continues on from the parable of the sower to share even more. They heard about growth in the kingdom, how receiving the word of God from this man would determine their fruitfulness for God. Not their wealth, not their reputation, not their education, not their family standing, not their profession, <coughs> but how they receive what he was saying. It was the most egalitarian thing they had ever heard. In fact, it was probably the only egalitarian thing they ever heard. Uh, let me define egalitarianism here. Egalitarianism or equalet <laughs> equalitarianism is a school of thought within political philosophy that builds from the concept of social equality, prioritizing it for all people. Egalitarian doctrines are generally characterized by the idea that all humans are equal in fundamental worth or moral status. Now, make no mistake here. This is not how honor-shame societies worked or work now. People knew their place. They knew what they could aspire to. Within limits, and uh, they knew what they could never aspire to. But Yeshua's here preaching a system where it's their receptiveness to God through Yeshua's teachings of the word that determined how far they could go with God. They didn't have to be Levites or priests or um, rich or well-respected. Goodness, this man has gathered around him a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector. Okay? I, he eats with the outcasts. And he tells them all the same message. And he doesn't pander to the political or social elites. What he said is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. The picture here would be a uh, familiar one, obviously. The small handheld um, lichnos placed underneath um, a two-gallon measuring basket. Or under a bed, which would actually be dangerous, a dangerous proposition as they didn't have beds like ours usually that could conceivably have a small handheld lamp beneath without catching on fire. Um, not for peasants anyway. No, the lamp under the basket provides no light and was a waste of perfectly good oil. It's going to smoke too, I'm sure. Um... And the lamp under the bed was worse than useless. It was potentially destructive and outright careless. This actually reads like one of the Proverbs, right? Let's look at a proverb out of Sirach. Sirach? Sirach. <laughs> Sirach. Or Ecclesiasticus 41, 14. My children, do as I teach you and live at peace. Wisdom that is not expressed is like a treasure that has been hidden. Both are useless. 
So this was written about 200 years earlier than Yeshua, but expresses a similar concept. This is wisdom literature, expressing important maxims or saying in a memorable way. I call them the no-does of literature because you hear it and it's impossible to argue with the simple wisdom of what's being expressed. Um, well, of course, wisdom hidden is useless, and of course you shouldn't put a lamp under a basket or bed. You know, however, Yeshua isn't just expressing a maxim here, a saying. This is actually a parable. Verses 22 and 23. For nothing is hidden, except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret, except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Nothing is hidden, crypto, from which we get the word cryptic, which will not be made manifest. Fanarote, which is a word meaning to be visible. Nor is anything secret, apocryphon, means hidden or concealed, except to come to light. Phaneron, meaning open to view. Phanerote and Phaneron are very closely related, and obviously this is a parallelism. Just saying the exact same thing twice in slightly different ways. Nothing is obscured that will not be made clear at some point in the future. Nor is anything an absolute secret that won't be revealed later. You know, just like last week, we aren't talking about your classic Greco-Roman and ancient Near Eastern mystery cults, where everything has to remain a secret. And hence why we, were, why we know almost nothing about Mithraism, and why so many unsupported legends have sprung up about it. You know, the less information there is about something, the more legends will come up. Like Nimrod in the Bible it appears four times. It doesn't even appear in the uh, Tower of Babel account. And yet, oh yeah, he was building the darn thing. Well, the Targum writers often, you know, disagreed with that because there wasn't any information. Anyway, um, you know, this is not that. This is not mystery cults. Nothing that is confusing or obscured now in Yeshua's ministry like his exact identity or what his future plans are, will be obscured or confusing at some point in the future. I'm talking about, you know, in that time when he's preaching. All would be revealed. And we get a huge hint in the wording of this. And this is what I was just recently reading about that, that absolutely blew my mind. And it's amazing what we don't see that's obviously just stinking right there. Yeshua is talking about being a light here. Now I gave you a hint with John 8 12. What is this hidden light that will be made manifest when placed on a stand? Oh, I want to read that again. Uh, John 8 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So so what is this hidden light that would be made manifest when placed on a, on a stand? It's him. Yeshua is the light of the world and he will be placed upon the cross for everyone to see. Everyone will see his death because everyone is at Passover. 
When he died, the light was taken from the world, and it went dark. But the darkness, like his death, was short-lived. People would stay for the week, and so they would hear of the resurrection. If they didn't hear it then, then they would hear it uh, because of the ruckus at uh, Pentecost, uh, a.k.a. Shavuot. On the Temple Mount, when 120 believers were filled with the Spirit of God, just like what happened to the elders around Mount Sinai. Then, um, then who Yeshua was and what he was doing and his mission and God's secret work in him to overthrow the powers of darkness, which had the entire world in bondage, all of that would be made manifest. No secrets. All would be revealed. It was only secret for a time and for very specific reasons. One, he had to preach the message of the kingdom unhindered by people's messianic expectations. Two, he had to avoid the Herodian entanglements that would have erupted if there was another king roaming around and gaining popularity. Especially a Davidic claimant, okay? I mean, yeah, there were like so many... Um, Davidic heirs at that point that you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting one, but it was still important. Three, he had to fly under the radar of Rome because they were always watchful for potential rebellions. And they were brutal in crushing anything that even remotely looked like one. Four, Satan could not know the real plan or he never would have allowed Yeshua to be crucified, thus dealing a death blow to his unfettered dominance over the world and its powers. This wasn't a game. This was the most brilliantly crafted battle plan in the history of the world. But once the trap had been sprung and the battle won, there was no more need for being cryptic and secretive. All would be revealed. Yeshua was not launching a mystery cult, but a worldwide exodus out of one kingdom and into God's kingdom. And these parables we were talking about two weeks ago, this, um, this week and, uh, and next week too, they're, they're kingdom parables that show us how we relate to the kingdom how, how the kingdom is and isn't hidden and revealed, and how the kingdom itself grows. Mysteries, yes, but only for a season. All will be revealed in shocking and terrible and wonderful and enduring ways. This isn't an elite club based on the apprehension of esoteric knowledge like the Gnostics and modern cults like Mormonism where there are things that are held back until you're one of them and worthy. This is a mystery made plain to the entire world. All right. Verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, like last week, this is a general summons and challenge. There, and actually the last two weeks, there are obvious, they are obviously there and interested and are challenged to hear and go deeper. This is reinforced by the next verse, verse 24. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. 
Okay, so not only here, pay close attention to what you are hearing. Again, this is spoken to the 12 plus the others who have remained after the regular crowds are gone. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. This is a very common sort of wisdom literature saying, and we see such things throughout rabbinic literature as well, because it's just good common sense. The effort you put in will be reflected in the result. How hard you work will go a long way toward determining your success. If you listen more, you will hear more. He who spoke so sparingly will gather sparingly. No. Practically, he who trusts God very little will change very little. Okay, He who listens to the Messiah only a little will gain very little understanding of the inbreaking kingdom. It's all about the investment and these people were taking a social risk, which God rewards when done for the right reasons. This isn't, you know, a particularly shocking observation and must not be mistaken for prosperity gospel. Because we will often give God one thing and he will reward us with another. And oftentimes our reward are not physical or tangible, but solely internal in nature. Someone might give away their life savings and be freed from a terrible burden. Um, and they might never get the money back, but they found freedom and growth, which are far more important. Taking this back to the parable of the sower, we have the different types of soil, but year after year that soil needs to be re-sown and re-plowed. We don't listen to God once. We don't trust God once. One and done, right? And, and call it good. This relationship is an ongoing and never-ending investment and an endurance race. If we measure out our devotion to God sparingly, we will have limited results in the growth of good fruit. If we rarely trust him, he won't be able to prove to us how trustworthy he is. And again, we will grow very little and what we do grow might be very bad indeed. Oh, gosh. You know, I can think about times in my own life where I didn't want to trust God. And actually, you know, I didn't trust him. And we're coming. We've got a weird amount of time before the half. So that's why I'm doing this. <laughs> we'll continue on with the rest later. You know, uh, especially in the uh, in the area of having people do bad things to me and wanting to retaliate. And the Lord says, don't retaliate. Trust me. And, you know, I get it in my mind. Oh, well, he is going to take revenge for me, but he's not that good. <laughs> he doesn't do that. You know, and that was the wrong motivation from me. I shouldn't obey him when he says don't retaliate just because I think he's going to retaliate for me and what he can do to them is way worse than what I can do. And I know some of you guys are going like, oh, yeah, you're either laughing right now or you're feeling very uncomfortable or both. <laughs> but, you know, I see later in trusting him and in not retaliating, well, I didn't, 
I didn't reap the negative consequences that would have come from retaliating. Two, the sin that was committed against me didn't get any bigger because I didn't return tit for tat. There was less sin in the world than there could have been because if I had retaliated, oh, let me tell you, there would have been sin involved. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm good at it. You know, I could have, you know, I could have eviscerated these guys. But God says, don't retaliate. And so I trust him. And with the measure that I trusted him and I held back, because sometimes I slipped, all right, on purpose. Um, you know, I reap benefits from that. And so do you. Anyway, I'll be back in a few minutes. Rosenquist and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. This week it's Mark, Gospel of Mark Part 4. We're talking about the hidden lamp. We're in Chapter 4. Um, and uh, we'll just keep going here. Verse 25, for, the, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is really important because these people lived in this reality. But uh, Yeshua is applying it in an alternate reality. Rich people are always getting more. And from whom? The poor. That's how it worked in the Roman Empire. And the Jewish population there were not exempted from that. And the poor who had very little... Even what they had was being cruelly and mercilessly taken away from them by the rich and powerful. Think they paid fewer taxes? <sighs> Think again. The rich were taxed out of their excess, but the poor were taxed out of what they needed to fill their bellies. Small family farmers were losing their property right and left as they struggled under the heavy Roman taxes on produce in addition to the tithes they were required to pay. Now the Pharisees, they looked down on them and their improper tithing, or they assumed. But these people were often near starvation, and even when they were landowners, okay, what would we say today? Some people have all the luck. But Yeshua took this real-world principle and turned it upside down. Are you sitting here listening to me? You will receive more and more revelation. From those who have rejected me, whatever share they had in revelation and the world to come will be stripped of them. You will be the truly wealthy ones in terms of the economy of the kingdom and they will be impoverished. You will sit with Abraham and the patriarchs and they'll be on the outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, I borrowed a bit from other teachings, but you get the drift. The economy of the kingdom is not monetary, and money does not determine true wealth in the kingdom. What kind of relationship do you have with God? 
if you seek after him and wait on him and follow after him, more will be given to you. But if you refuse, if you think that what you have now is good enough and enjoy the world too much to risk being asked to give any of it up, even what you think you have will be taken from you. You see, if the kingdom wasn't different from the world, it would be filled with all the same old, same old. The rich, athletic, beautiful, talented, educated, healthy people on the top, and the poor, disabled, unattractive, clumsy, uneducated people on the bottom. And yes, some of those terms are ugly, but so are the attitudes behind keeping people down because of those things or because of these perceptions. So, you know, and you know, so is the social ranking that we assign to them. It's ugly, all right? But that's this world, and it would be a lie to deny it. The kingdom is, and should be, and will be different. That we haul those worldly values into our kingdom-ish gatherings is tragic. That we still judge people by how much money they can donate to the ministry and be sure not to alienate them. That we want the good singers entertaining us, etc. Instead of focusing on the things that matter. Namely, a person's works and their devotion to God and others. If this were the pure kingdom, that is what we would exalt over worldly concerns. I mean, come on, we'd all love to have rich benefactors, but only if they don't meddle and interfere. But the kingdom currency is not the same as ours. It isn't even something we can imagine, you know probably how, how different it'll be. Okay, enough of that. Now I want to talk about eschatology because I see a lot of it out there right now. You know, I wrote this um, two weeks ago, the last week of June, and this will not air until September. It'll be interesting to see how things are different then. And people are saying any day now and making predictions because Things are a bit unpleasant in America, and we tend to have no perspective because our lives here are just so insanely easy and posh compared to the rest of the world. A ruckus happens, and we think it is the end. Want a ruckus? Try Tiananmen Square. Or living in a believer in certain areas of the Middle East or Africa or China. Try being an untouchable in India. Put riots and toppled statues into perspective. If Yeshua hasn't come to rescue his people in places where they're actually being burned alive in churches, I doubt he bats an eyelash over our hoarding-induced toilet paper shortages. Truly, we have it easier than any believers at any time in history. We don't need to be rescued we need to be gib-slapped. Um, I've been reading this um, book by Richard B. Hayes. It's called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. Um, I started after I finished the Wilberforce book, and 
This one was recommended in another book um, that I was reading by uh, Gregory Boyd. And um, yeah, I, I ended up not really willing to recommend that one. So I'm not even going to tell you. <laughs> anyway, Hayes brought up something interesting about the difference between how believers, the believers in Thessalonica and Corinth were handling what they believed was our Savior's very soon or imminent return. And might I add that every generation has believed very fervently that their generation was the one and could prove it from Scripture. So we have to put all of our scriptural wrangling into the context of everyone so far being wrong and many of them being very much smarter than we are. At least me. Okay, they're smarter than me. Now, a bit of background. Paul had a rough time of it in Thessalonica. Although they listened intently to him for three weeks in the synagogue and a lot of converts were made, a few leaders made some serious trouble, resulting in the arrest of Paul and Silas and their having to leave town. That being said, their visit yielded amazing fruit because those who accepted the gospel of Yeshua were like, just on fire for God in every way. They were generous and full of good works. They believed in Yeshua's return and were working very diligently in light of that belief. But Paul didn't have any ideas, any idea what the uh, results of his ministry trip were. And at one point he sent Timothy to go and learn. And evidently Timothy's report was beyond Paul's wildest dreams. Rarely do we get to see such a glowing report of a local congregation and their progress, despite initially having very little time with Paul and Silas. Paul even notes that they do not have to be taught how to love one another because God's obviously taught them that himself. Wow. So these guys have an eschatological belief in the return of Yeshua, and it has spurred them on to good works and love and generosity and zealousness. They are the gold standard. On the other hand, we have Corinth, the problem child of the Bible. The Corinthians committed sins that would make the most hardened centurion blush with shame. Father and son sleeping with the same woman. Seriously? What is this? Jerry Springer? And that's just the gross stuff. They are also unloving and petty in the extreme. Now, Corinth, okay, a bit of historical background here. Greek Corinth was destroyed in 146 BCE by the Romans, who rebuilt it as a Roman colony in 44 BCE. And it was populated largely by retired soldiers and their families. It was not a Jewish outpost, nor was it a Greek city. It was as Roman as Rome itself. So these people had Roman values and Roman gods and participated in the imperial cult and the games and the gladiators and all that stuff. It was their culture. Paul comes in after he visited Thessalonica and Athens. And it's in Corinth where he meets Priscilla and Aquila and stayed there for 18 months. 
is evident from Paul's first letter, well, actually his second at least, uh, because they make mention of another letter that we don't have, that he was of the belief that Yeshua would return fairly soon. Let's look at chapter 7, verse, starting in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. But uh, the Corinthians... They were not reacting to this news the same way the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians did. Instead of engaging zealously in good works and brotherly love, they were living up and just flat out being nasty. Some of them were wanting to forego the responsibilities of family and marriage and just give up on life. But Paul was warning them against that line of thinking. No. It is precisely because of the return that we must go on laboring and living and loving one another. Certainly Paul's beliefs about the soon return of our Lord didn't keep him from traveling and preaching the gospel. Quite the contrary. He always behaved as though there was no time to lose. And that is exactly how we must behave. You know, I have to admit that I've been shocked at what I see out there for... Every time some sort of unpleasantness occurs, whether big or small, people start date-setting and guaranteeing that they're hearing from the Lord that the time is soon, only to be wrong again and again. But that isn't even the most disturbing part. The most disturbing part is that they aren't doing anything about the lost, the poor, the suffering, and the vulnerable. No, they're preaching this to their own carefully chosen choirs on social media. But if you hold off today on alleviating oppression and righting wrongs because you feel the end is near, then your faith has been rendered a useless and self-serving expression of nothingness. Look, as long as we have breath in our bodies... We must endure and fight for what is right and against what is wrong, or all we can truly be said to believe in is taking the easy way out for the benefit of nothing, no one but ourselves. I cannot think of a sorrier or more misrepresentative reflection of the revealed character of God in Christ among the modern congregations of Messiah than to just sit around on our hands waiting for rescue. From what? from nothing compared to the nightmare of what others endure daily. You know, you know, while others are truly suffering right at this minute, okay? And they will be suffering tomorrow too, and next week, and next month, and next year. And beyond that, anyone who truly believes that the return is imminent and is not out there desperately trying to reach the lost, is at best selfish and unloving and perhaps at worst damned in themselves and hoping in a salvation they will be unable to attain because their hearts were never changed from their originally, original beastly nature despite all their religious trappings and posturing. This is why we are a powerless people 
we are more concerned with who is keeping the right sabbath and celebrating the right holidays and eating the right foods and giving assent to the right doctrines than we are with who needs the message of the kingdom lives are at stake and folks are just comparatively biding time and debating how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, and probably whether or not pins are pagan. If your imminent eschatology doesn't spur you to action on behalf of those who need Yeshua or Jesus in the here and now, okay, then you have a serious heart issue that you need God to fix, because it isn't okay. I once heard the talking half of uh, Penn and Teller talking about why he is an atheist and his reason made perfect sense. He stated that Christians obviously don't believe what they say they believe because if they believed it, they would be desperate to reach people. But they don't. I suppose the problem is that we might believe it, but we are in fact very self-centered and petty. We don't love others in a self-sacrificing way. We don't go out because it makes us uncomfortable. We worship our comfort level. While people die and people suffer and people are subjected to terrible oppression, we think only of our comfort. Honestly, sometimes I wonder what it is we actually do believe in. Ourselves, maybe? Will he return to find us occupying and doing his works, or will he return to find us biding time and waiting it out instead? I mean, who's going to hear, you know, get away from me, I never knew you. Well, there's all this suffering in the world, and we're not, there's all these people that don't know him, and, and we do nothing. I said before that I had finished the uh, Wilberforce book by Eric Metaxas and uh, Amazing Grace. And, and, and it was released at the same time and in conjunction with the making of the movie, the same name, about his life's work of ending oppression. Most famously, of course, he was God's tool to end the slave trade. Not only in, uh, in England and its colonies, but also in Russia and Europe. He also uh, started the forerunner of the um, RSPCA, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, ended animal baiting, public executions, and the public autopsies of their bodies for entertainment, and child brothels in neighborhoods. Neighborhoods. It's bad enough that they existed, but, you know, they were everywhere. Believe me, Victorian England was really more like Wilberforcean England because he set standards that her reign has been given public credit for. His good works were endless despite his always being somewhat ill and barely able to see well enough to read. He gave away fortunes and died a pauper. Living with his sons who were in the ministry, he believed that Yeshua who he, of course, called Jesus, was returning and was determined to do what he could to make the world right in any way that he could. But he never said good enough. He was constantly witnessing the gospel to people. He wrote a book on his own religious thoughts in the late 18th century when no one famous was doing such things. 
he occupied this earth on behalf of the kingdom and never rested never gave up his faith took him from being a young brash junior mp which means member of parliament in the house of commons to becoming the conscience of the world he campaigned for kindness and civility and brotherly love to all and he never resorted to worldly tactics when he battled slavers he didn't insult them or demean them in any way even when he got death threats from them even when the press turned against him occasionally and the poets lampooned him he never went back to the old worldly verbal tactics that he was so good at he treated everyone with the dignity that he insisted they deserved just by nature of being humans what he demanded for the slave he did not withhold from the slaver he was remarkable and he never felt as though he had done enough If we had ten of him, the world would be turned upside down, but right now I'd settle for just one. And yet there should be at least a little bit of Wilberforce in all of us. We ought to all love people enough so as to have zero tolerance for oppression. I, I wonder what's wrong with us, that we don't riot and revolt en masse to get child sex workers off the streets. The pimps couldn't shoot all of us. Heck, Gandhi got people to be willing to risk being shot just to gain access to salt. What's wrong with us? This stuff exists because we allow it and because we're too divided over doctrines to care about human misery. We are scared of dying. If the church united worldwide, there are enough of us that no one could hurt anyone in most of the world or at least in large portions of it. You know, maybe the seeds falling into soil that we don't bother to plow, eh? Are we ignoring the hurt out there? It's too scary, too inconvenient, too costly, too risky? Are we really afraid of dying? Should we be, uh, Afraid of dying, or should we be scared of what we will tolerate in order to survive? We're not powerless because the government keeps us powerless. We're powerless because we have chosen the easy path of infighting and posturing and comfort and turning a blind eye. That makes us the oppressors, I imagine. Maybe that's why what we think we have is being taken from us, eh? We think we have freedom and rights, but as long as we don't fight for the freedom and rights of others, they're empty things. Oh, I know. It's a hard word. It's hard to say it. It's hard to think it. Because, you know, it applies to me too. Don't think that I'm just, you know preaching to you guys and claiming to be all that different because I'm not. I have this book. I have these books, actually. They're written by a guy named Paul Hathaway. And one of them is the peoples of China and the other one is the Buddhist peoples of the world. And it's divided up into this calendar. And so every day I end up praying for um, 
This year I'm doing China. And so every day of the year I end up praying for um, one or two tribes within China. And there are like 540 of them or something like that. Different languages. It, it's, it's amazing. And uh, next year I'll do the Buddhists again worldwide. But you're looking at these at these population demographics and it's stunning the percentages of people who have never heard the name of our savior in China. And sometimes whole peoples, thousands or ten thousands, sometimes a hundred thousands, have never heard his name. And that's unthinkable to us in the West. We can't imagine that that could even be possibly true, but it is. Same way with uh, Buddhists. And I haven't gotten into the Muslims yet. I need to find a book like that, you know, about Islam. And, um, but the reason they haven't heard is because we don't do anything. I, I once heard somebody say, well, you know what? God knew when he had those people born in those cultures that they would never hear about him. And I, uh, I think I, I, I laid into her. I said, no, when Yeshua left the earth, he gave a commandment that we were going to the world and preach. We let them down. It wasn't God's intention. They never hear the gospel. It was evidently ours. And of course, yes, it's complicated in China now. We didn't go in when we could. And now we're just too scared. <laughs> Maybe we need to stop being scared of dying. Maybe we need to ask God what's wrong with our hearts. See you next week.